scripture reading this evening will be Matthew 27, 45-52. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus, Jesus cried out, with, out, out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The t- the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Well, good evening. Thank you for being here, and... Thank you for the invitation to come and fill the pulpit. I've, I was about to think I might just strike out completely. The last two times I was here, it snowed, and I thought, well, if I go in June, maybe I'll be able to beat the weather. So I brought you this heat wave instead, and I hope you'll be able to tolerate that. Eli just read to us from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54, and that is the basis for our lesson study tonight. Over the years, I've preached a series of lessons, seven of them actually in the series, the title of which is The Wonders of Calvary. And in that series of lessons, I focus on some supernatural or providential event that took place that clearly defines the divine character of both Jesus and the event itself. In that series, my favorite is the lesson I'm going to preach tonight, which is about the fifth wonder, which would be the darkness at noon. Now you may be thinking, well, I've never heard a lesson on darkness at noon. Well, I hadn't either until I preached it. And um, it's an incredible narrative. It tells us a great many things. I think it's quite beneficial to us in helping our faith and in establishing some things that we need to be reminded of with respect to how we explain what we read about in the Bible. There are many difficult things that occur and we cannot possibly begin to explain them. But the skeptic and the materialist comes along and he bombs on to some of those and he seeks to offer some natural explanation whereby he can undermine the miraculous character of the Bible and of the events that are associated with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and perhaps plant seeds of doubt in our mind concerning whether or not these things actually were prophesied and happened according to the predictions of Scripture, or these things might just be coincidence. I certainly do not believe that the death of Jesus Christ was coincidence, and I do not believe that this great darkness that came over the earth 
at noon was something that could be called a natural phenomenon. As I said just a moment ago, the skeptics try to uh, explain what happened here using a natural phenomenon as the explanation. You can do a Google search. I did one several years ago, and then I did another one this afternoon just to see if there was anything new worth mentioning tonight, and really there isn't, but generally there's two explanations offered for this darkness. It's often referred to as an eclipse. The Bible does not call it an eclipse. The Bible says darkness came over the earth about the sixth hour, which would be noon in Hebrew reckoning, and prevailed until uh, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. One fella uh, takes the traditional dates of the crucifixion, 33 AD, and he cannot find an eclipse that occurred in 33 AD. But he backs up his calendar and he looks at 29 AD, which is kind of close, and says there was an eclipse that occurred in Palestine in 29 AD on November the 24th. Well, now, if you know anything about the Hebrew calendar, you know that Christ was crucified in the spring of the year during the Passover. He was not crucified in the fall of the year in November. So that kind of fails and as an explanation, yet this is his offering that, well, we can't be certain about the things in the Bible anyway. There's lots of mistakes. There's lots of errors. And here's what they were talking about. Certainly that's not the case. Another writer tries to satisfy the explanation of the darkness at noon, as mentioned by Matthew and Mark, by referring to a lunar eclipse that occurred in uh, that same year of 33 AD. It did occur on a Friday. It did occur in April. So this uh, fits the bill as far as the time is concerned, but it was a lunar eclipse, an eclipse of the moon. Now, <clears throat> someone asked me how I was going to illustrate all of this, and I've kind of gone back to my... Uh, vacation Bible school days, and so I'm going to use an object lesson tonight that I think will help us all uh, be able to understand exactly what's going on. A solar eclipse takes place when the moon is between the sun and the earth. And that eclipse will fall upon part of the earth. It doesn't go over the entire earth. It'll fall upon part of the earth, depending upon where the earth is and the moon is in relation to the sun and the time of year. We know that the earth goes around the sun once a year and the moon goes around the earth once a month. And when the new month begins in the Hebrew calendar, because the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar and not a solar calendar, we follow a solar calendar. So our year has 365 and one quarter days. That's how long it takes the earth to go around the sun. And every four years we make up that extra day by having leap year. So 
325 and a quarter, 325 and a quarter, so on and so forth. And then that extra day comes along in leap year. The Hebrews, though, because they followed a lunar calendar, had to make corrections more often because a lunar month is just 28 days. The cycle that it takes the moon to go around the earth. And so every 28 days, there is a new moon. And the new moon occurs at the first of the month. Remember that. And so the only time that a, an eclipse could possibly occur would be when the new moon was taking place. So it comes out of the full moon and then comes where there's a few days it's not seen and then it begins to go through its phases again until it comes around and a month is complete and a new, another new moon, a new month begins. The Hebrews will add a month periodically into their calendar called an intercalary month to make corrections for the days that they miss with regard to the lunar cycles. Now, all of that, someone says, well, I didn't come here for an astronomy lesson. Well, no, you came here for a Bible lesson. And this Bible lesson is very important because I'm going to show you some things tonight that the Bible says that you may have never even considered as being important to what we're talking about. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the lunar eclipse is just basically the opposite of the solar eclipse. In other words, instead of the moon being between the earth and the sun, the earth is between the sun and the moon. So the moon's over here on the backside of the earth. And the eclipse is the shadow of the earth that falls across the moon. We had one of these not too long ago. And down in East Texas where we live, uh, we watched it for the entire night one night as we were driving back from Hainesville to Nacogdoches. Uh, and it's a very outstanding thing. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it's awesome. And uh, the sun actually, in some instances, begins to have a red cast to it. And so this is the idea of the blood moon. The sun was darkened and the moon was turned into the blood. And this fellow who tries to associate this with a lunar eclipse does so by quoting Acts 2.20, which is a quotation of Joel chapter 2, and says, well, during the death of Jesus Christ, the sun was going to be darkened and the moon turned to blood. Yet you're familiar with your Bible and you know in Acts 2, Joel 2 is not quoted in connection with the death of Jesus. What's it quoted in connection with? The establishment of the church. So for a man to say that it was a solar eclipse, he's denying what the text says. Because you know how, how long does a solar eclipse? Do you know how long a solar eclipse lasts? The most that a naturally occurring solar eclipse will last is 12 minutes. Most people can only see them for about five to seven minutes, depending where they are on the earth. Now, a lunar eclipse will last for about three hours. But when does it occur? It always occurs at night. And so regardless of what explanation is offered, it's a denial of the text. Well, let's examine that a little bit further. Turn, if you will, back in your Old Testament. <clears throat> and this is one of the reasons why I like to preach this lesson, because one of the things I've heard all my life 
about folks, uh, some folks say, and complain about studying the Old Testament. Well, there's not anything in that Old Testament that I really need to know. It's just about days and years and numbers and months and, and, and particularly the book of Leviticus and all those different sacrifices. And I grant you there's a lot there and it can be complex. But look at Leviticus chapter 23. That's a, an important chapter because Leviticus chapter 23 talks about the festivals that the Jews kept. There were three of these. There was Passover. There was unleavened bread, which is associated with Passover. And oftentimes in the New Testament, one is used for both because Passover was on the 14th day of Nisan. And then unleavened bread began on the 15th day of Nisan. And so they were kept together. I'll say some more about that in just a moment. Then there's fruits, first fruits or tabernacles. And there's Pentecost, which was 50 days after. From the day after the... <clears throat> Uh, Sabbath of the Passover for seven Sabbaths plus one day, 50 days, is the Pentecost. And so these are the festivals that the Jews kept. Now, this first festival, Passover, was kept in the first month of the year. You go back to Exodus chapter 12, and when J Moses told the children of Israel that they were to take a lamb and to put it up and then they were to kill the lamb and they were to take the blood and to put it on the doorposts and the lentils. He said, this will be the beginning of months for you. And on the 10th day of that month, they were to put up the Passover. And then on the 14th day, they were to kill it at evening. Now, the evening, as far as the Jew was concerned, was between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 6 p.m., because their days run from 6 to 6, sundown to sundown. So the evening, we think of evening as being after 6 o'clock, the evening news. No, the evening for the Jews was from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., and that's when the lamb is killed on the 14th day of Nisan. And then it was eaten with the unleavened bread on the 15th day, which began after sunset. All right, now, the Jews are counting... 14 days from the first of the month and the first of the month is the new moon and how far does the moon move in 14 days? Well, it's about right here behind the earth. Now, I, if my illustration has worked, you've realized that there's no way in the world that a solar eclipse will explain what happened as it is recorded in Matthew 27. What I have just shown you is, and this is why this is important, what I have just shown you is, it must have been a miracle. It had to be. Here, okay. But when the moon is here, behind the sun, there's no way in the world that the shadow of the moon is going to be cast over the earth. It had to be a miracle. Now, who's big enough Great enough, God enough to do that. The God of heaven. Now that's why these things are important. They're not just extraneous facts laying out there that you don't need to be bothered about. And that's why this lesson was so intriguing to me because it helped me realize that everything we need to know to explain what we have to explain or in order to secure our faith 
has been revealed to us in God's Word. This is an incredible book. Absolutely marvelous. It interprets itself and it provides all the information that anyone should ever need to establish that God is a truth teller and that the miracles actually did occur. Well, that's the end of my object lesson. And now let's talk about what all of this really, really means. Since only a miracle could possibly explain what happened, then the next question becomes is, would God work that kind of miracle? Is there any reason to believe that God would do this? Maybe this is just something that was made up. It was misunderstood. Would God work this kind of miracle? And I would like to suggest to you that indeed He would. Think back in your minds to the lessons that you learned when you were a young person in, in vacation Bible school maybe or in Bible class. And you remember one of the great things, at least this is always one of the great things I remember, was the lesson on the ten plagues. I've got a good friend, David Padfield, on his website, padfield.com. You can find several lesson studies on against the gods of Egypt. And that little booklet talks about how each one of those miracles was directed toward, or those plagues, was directed toward the gods of Egypt. That's what Moses said about it. And how it was that the sun god and the river god and the fertility gods and various other gods that were represented by frogs and by other things were affected by these plagues. And among the plagues that were wrought was the plague of darkness. And do you remember what the Bible says about the plague of darkness, it was such an outstanding miracle that it was a darkness which could be felt. And what was even more incredible about this darkness was is that it was in all the houses of the Egyptians, but it was not in the houses of the Hebrews. They had light, but the Egyptians didn't have light. That's a lesson in itself. Now, just how dark is a darkness that can be felt? I'm not sure that I know exactly how dark that is, but I think I can get pretty close. Sean over there, he's from Arkansas like I am, and we have a big hole in the ground up there called Blanchard Caverns. We're kind of proud of it in Arkansas because it's actually bigger than Carlsbad Caverns, and everybody knows about Carlsbad Caverns. But Blanchard Caverns is big hole in the ground, and they've got it all lit up, and they take you down there through stairs and steps and one thing and another. <clears throat> and you get down to the bottom into the cathedral room, and they have it all lit up, and it's fascinating to see all the colors and all the formations, the water dripping, the stalactites and the stalagmites, and then all of a sudden they turn the lights out. You heard that old joke, where was Moses when the lights went out? He was in the dark. No, not really, because he was in the light, wasn't he? But everybody else was in the dark. And when those lights went out at the bottom of that cavern, there was a woman there standing not very far from me, and she hollered. And I kind of felt like that must have been 
darkness that could be felt. It's a very eerie feeling not to be able to see anything at all. One moment you're seeing, and the next moment, you can't even reach. You, you don't even know where to reach to touch. My wife was standing right beside me, not 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 a foot away, and I could not see her. So God causes this darkness, and so it seems to me that He who created can command, and that's what we have exemplified there in the plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10. But what about Joshua chapter 10? When the children of Israel were fighting against their enemies and Joshua prayed to God, says, stay the sun. And so God stayed the sun. Someone said, that's impossible. If God had stopped the, the earth from spinning on its axis and so on and so forth, the whole planet would have fallen apart and rocks and trees and everything go flying everywhere and men would die. Okay. Do you not believe that the God who creates is the God who commands? See, this is, this is why I say this is an important lesson. Because it forces us to deal with some realities and other things that are expressed in the Bible. What about 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 8? When God spoke to Hezekiah after he healed him with a lump of figs for a boil or a cancer or a tumor or something that was on his back, and God said to Hezekiah, he said, Hezekiah, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign in the heavens above, the earth beneath. He said, God said, would you like me to make the sun go forward in the day? Hezekiah, a very smart man, he says, that happens every day. Sun rises, the sun sets. He says, make it go the other way. And so God moved the day back 10 degrees on the sundial of Ahaz. And that's a very significant point. I'm going to dwell on this a minute. Because this whole story about Ahaz and Hezekiah is messianic. Because when Hezekiah is healed at this point, he had no children. It's in the 15 years that follow this that God gives him Manasseh, who was both the most wicked king and one of the best kings that Israel ever had. You never hear about the good part because it doesn't matter how good you are. You can't correct all the bad that you do. It's kind of like opening a, a feather pillow and scattering it around all over the place. You can't pick it all up. But God taught him a lesson. But the point is, is that Manasseh becomes the fulfillment of God's promise to David that the Messiah would come through the the Davidic line. But now Ahaz, who is Hezekiah's father, was a wicked, wicked, wicked king. And you remember that Isaiah came to him and said, what sign would you have that you might know that the Syrians are not going to come down here and take you off the throne with the help of the king of Israel and remove you? And Ahaz had already made a league with the Assyrians on this deal. And he didn't believe in God. He says, oh, I wouldn't tempt the Lord God. If the God of heaven asks you to do something, you're not tempting him. That's feigned humility on the part of Ahaz. But now here you have Hezekiah. This is why this is significant to me anyway. Here you have Hezekiah who asks for a miracle and God works the miracle on the sundial of Ahaz. 
He works the miracle and he just puts a little icing on that cake for that unbeliever. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. And so here we see God commanding the sun to stand still. We see God commanding the day to go back. We see God bringing extended darkness over an entire country and then able to make it light in the households of a few of the people that live there. Do you not think he can come up with three hours of darkness? There's ample proof in the scriptures for us to understand this. Well, is it the kind of miracle that God would do? It most certainly is. Because who was involved in this miracle? Who is at the center of this miracle? If you were listening to the text as Eli was reading it, the focus is obviously on Jesus. The focus is on the Son of God who is hanging there on the cross and at noon he cried out and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is the first verse of Psalm 22. And John records over in chapter 19 that Jesus also quotes the last verse, or at least paraphrases it when he says, It is finished. And that three hours of darkness began with the quotation of that psalm and ended with the quotation of that psalm. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. God was focusing our attention on Jesus. Well, someone asked and says, was this a worldwide event or was this just a local event? And I'm not going to argue with you one way or the other. I'll tell you what I think. I think it was a local event. The reason for that is because in verse 45 of chapter 27, the event is time specific. It was the third hour of the day. It was noon, excuse me, it was the sixth hour of the day. It was noon in Jerusalem. But noon in Jerusalem is not noon in New York or Los Angeles, even though those places didn't even exist at that time, or anywhere in India or somewhere else around the world. As a matter of fact, just bring my cups back out here. Here's the sun. Here's the earth. This is noon. What's true of half the planet? It's nighttime, that's right. Has no meaning at all for the rest of the planet. So it seems to me that an event like this, which is so dramatic and so obvious, that's focused on Jesus, should be focused on the people who were killing Jesus. And so God is giving a sign to His people. Now someone says, well... Darkness has significance for the whole world. Jesus died for the whole world, and certainly that's the case, and no one's denying that. But where is this narrative recorded? It's recorded in the Gospels. Where has it been preached for over 2,000 years? Right here in the Gospels. So I don't think the universal application has lost its event, effect. It is a local event which seems more in keeping with the facts and the darkness seems to me to have been for those who were observing the crucifixion. And that's evident there as you get down to the 
end of the reading there in verse 54, now when the centurion saw these things. A lot of people looking on. A lot of people paying attention. Well, what does this fifth wonder reveal? It reveals the power of God. I think I'm stating the obvious there, but you see a lot of people just don't believe in the power of God. Do you realize how par powerful God is? And this, this relates to the cultural questions of our time. What is the one thing that people in our time, specifically in our country, are trying to deny almost it seems like on a daily basis? The creation of the heavens and the earth. God couldn't have done this because God doesn't exist. God couldn't have done this because God doesn't have power over the sun or the planets or the stars of heaven or the satellites that move about the planets. All of this is governed by natural law. You know, I'm a firm believer in natural law. And I believe what the Hebrew writer says there in Hebrews chapter 11 with regard to the speaking of, of the world into existence and it being governed by the Word of God. Same thing there in Colossians 1 as well as in the Psalms. But let me tell you something. We don't know all there is to know about how this universe works. I've got a couple of clocks at my house that I've inherited over the years. And I've often wanted to just take them apart and try to work on them. But you know what keeps me from doing that? I know absolutely nothing about clocks. And I've seen enough cartoons as a kid to know that just as soon as I pull one of those nuts off of there, the whole thing's going to fly out, out here in the middle of everywhere, and, and I'll never be able to get it back together again. So they just don't tick or talk or chime anymore. And that's sad. But if I were a clockmaker, I could do something about that. God, who made the universe, knows how to interpose Himself in it, and I submit to you that's not a contravening necessarily of His rule of the universe. It's in harmony with His rule. I just don't have the power to do that. God lives outside of space and time. And we're bounded within space and time. And we can only do what God has created this universe to do but the fact that God interposes Himself sometimes does not mean there aren't any rules. It just means God's bigger than you and I are. And see, that's what the unbeliever really doesn't like. Because if there's a creator, there's a creation. And if there's a creator, there's a law. And if there's a law, and I am the creature... I've got to submit to it. And so in all of this that's being done on this, this marvelous day in which Jesus was crucified, we have exemplified and we have affirmed in the activity of God that this is His Son and that He is in control and that He is the one who is ruling in this matter. Jesus didn't die by accident. Jesus died by intent. 
he emptied himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the prophet, of, of the cross. God's prophets are confirmed through miracles. And so here we have a confirming act on the part of God with respect to Christ. This is my son. Furthermore, there is, I think, a wonderful metaphorical explanation. Now, you may disagree with me here on this, but we just sang a song a few moments ago, the third verse of which is well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. There the poetic, the metaphorical implications of what takes place in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 are evident to the hymnist. In that song, it is a poetic application known as the figure of speech personification. And there are many such uses of this in the Bible. For example, turn over to Isaiah chapter 33, if you would. Verse 9. The earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a wilderness and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. There the prophet is talking about a judgment that's coming on the nation Israel and the reaction of the land to that judgment that's coming on those people. They are ashamed, he says. Well, trees aren't ashamed. Mountains aren't ashamed. When God put the children of Israel in the land of Canaan, and told them to keep themselves free of the people that they were to drive out, that they were to destroy them all, else the land would do what? Vomit them out as it had the Canaanites. That's personification. God didn't mean that the land was literally going to expel the Canaanites through their digestive tract. No. It's figurative. And it's oftentimes the case in the scripture that figures are used to describe judgment. Nature is pictured here as mourning the Creator's treatment. That seems reasonable. We just sang another song a few moments ago, Praise Him, Praise Him, which is based on the 148th Psalm in which all of nature praises God. How does that which is inanimate praise God? Someone says, well, the stars declare, yes. They give praise to God through the fact that they operate according to His will and their explanation for their existence cannot be otherwise than to accept that there is a God. But it's still poetic language. And so here you have Jesus on the cross and He's crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, darkness veils the earth or the land. 
indicating how horrified the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets are at the scene that's taking place here. If the earth mourns and the earth trembles and the earth turns away, what about men? What should they do? Especially those men who are guilty in having crucified Christ. What was it that was preached on Pentecost? You, you, you have taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain. By the time we get over to chapter 4, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are complaining, says, you seek to bring this man's blood upon our heads. Well, you know what? You stood out in front of the pavement and riled up the crowd till they hollered, crucify him, crucify him. Now get it, his blood be on us and our children. They wanted the credit. And here God shows them what they've done. And in preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost, they wanted to hide because they realized they were in need of forgiveness. And then let me suggest to you that it, it indicates a judgment that is coming upon Israel. Jesus had prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 that Jerusalem would be destroyed because of what they would do to the Son of God. And the Jews throughout the Old Testament, particularly in, in the book of Amos, Amos will talk about, you who say, day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Don't be too anxious for the day of the Lord. Because what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of darkness, Joel says in chapter 3. And it is described in that way. Ezekiel 32, though it's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8, talking about Egypt's fall. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord. What is that darkness telling these Jews who killed the Son of God? Day of the Lord. Judgment Day. Do you really want this? This is God's last appeal to a wicked and rebellious people. Israel was rejected. There at the end of chapter 23 in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, Your house is left unto you desolate or forsaken or empty. It reminds me of the image of Ezekiel chapter 6 when the glory of God departed from the temple and went out over through the western gate and stood over the Mount of Olives in the vision that Ezekiel saw. Though the word is not used there, the idea is that the glory is departed and you remember where that comes from. That comes from 2 Samuel chapter 8 when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and old Eli fell backwards and broke his neck and his daughter-in-law who was who was with child went into labor and she had a son and she called him Ichabod. Why? Because the glory 
is departed. It was a day of national tragedy and calamity when God left Israel. Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. The other things in this same chapter there of Matthew 27, the veil of the temple is rent and there's an earthquake. All speak to those issues of judgment. God did indeed bring them back from Babylon. God had blessed them materially and politically in the land. But the reality is, is when they killed the Lord of glory, the Prince of life, they were no more His people. But perhaps the most obvious indication of what this means is the one that I think all of us will readily agree is apparent. And that is, without Jesus, we're all in the dark. We're all in sin. That's what John chapter 3, verse 19 indicates. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Here's Jesus hanging upon the cross, dying for our sins. These men standing by have been saying all manner of evil and wicked things. If you look at the 22nd Psalm and you read Matthew 27, many of the things that those priests and uh, people say about Jesus as they're passing by the cross are practically word for word taken out of the 22nd Psalm. And Jesus begins that, that scene with a quotation from the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And darkness comes over the land. You're in darkness. You're, you're rejecting the Lord of glory. He's not our Savior. We don't want one that can be killed. We don't want one that he's nothing more than a carpenter. We don't want one who isn't willing to feed us until we are more than satisfied. We don't want one who's constantly talking about living right and repenting of sin and being the kind of people that God wants us to be. That's not the Savior we want. So you killed him. And then at that moment, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. And what happens? It's light. How do you and I come to the light? How are you and I going to be in the light? We're going to have to accept the crucified Son of God. We're never going to get out of the darkness without Jesus. A lot of people don't like that idea. And they've rejected Him. But clearly, what is said here in John chapter 3, he that believeth on him is not condemned, that he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, 
that light, Jesus is the light, is come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And I get it. He that doeth the truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. Then verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Will you come and confess the name of Jesus tonight? Will you do the truth? Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Come right now while we stand.